the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. First of all, uh, they got it wrong. They missed a big opportunity uh, to talk about this crisis of domestic violence and sexual assault. They always wanted to talk about the sensationalistic and the lurid details, details about, uh, you know, me cutting off my ex-husband's uh, penis off. So it's really sad that the media, you know, portray me as a crazy, hot-blooded Latina, which is basically a racist statement as well. So I wanted to set the record straight that a lot of women who actually wanted to talk about the issues of domestic violence and sexual assault couldn't because uh, the boss were men. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and farther away from Billy Jensen. It is 11 a.m. And uh, Miss Alexis, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a uh, rosé and orange, blood orange soda spritzer with blackberries in it. Sounds delicious. It's called self-care. It is called self-care. <laughs> And you know, what? Yeah. I saw that there was a study about, well, this is a Sunday, so we're not during working hours, but there was a study done that I think 40% of people are drinking during working hours. So this is just, this is our new normal, you guys, that we've kind of been living in yeah. forever. And I just started, yeah, that's true. And I started drinking just a slightly earlier than I used to. It used to be like seven. Now it's four because <laughs> I won't do it in the morning, but four o'clock. I'm like, hmm. Uh, see, morning is my ideal time to drink, but you know that's because you go to bed at six. Yes, I know. It gives me a full a full <laughs> day to enjoy the festivities. But anyways, Billy, what day is it today? It is nothing to fear day. Oh, that's yes. There's nothing to fear day. but fear itself. Yeah, there's also it's also old time player piano day. But I know that that would just bring on a lot of old jokes towards me. Mm-hmm. So really, you're I, you're projecting. We were gonna say um, you love pianos. <laughs> <laughs> Any other good days? No, that's pretty much it. I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alexa says that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. <laughs> The story of Lorena Bobbitt drew media attention in 1993 for being one of the most disturbing domestic dispute stories to ever hit the news. Lorena was not the first woman to ever fight back against her husband, and she wasn't the last. But her story was one of the first to change the way the world perceived domestic abuse and sexual assault. Lorena's actions sent a chill down the spine of abusers from around the world. Because with that cut of a knife, she wasn't only asking for things to change, but she was screaming for it, demanding it. 
in the entire world heard her. So today's case takes us back to June 23rd of 1993. Bill Clinton was president. That's the way love goes by Janet Jackson was on the charts and the movie Jurassic Park was the top at the movie theaters. And the setting for today's case is Manassas. That's a town in Northern Virginia, which acts as a bedroom community to Washington, D.C., which is only 25 miles away from the suburban area. And the place is rich in American history, and it was the site of two Civil War battles, Battle Bull Run, Battle Royal Run 2. And reenactors often depict those battles near the Manassas National Battlefield Park. It's quiet. And for the most part, it floats under the radar as far as scandals are concerned. But all of that was about to change. Between 2 and 3 a.m. on the 23rd of June in 1993, calls between law enforcement officers started ping-ponging between one another. And the information that was being shared was shocking and confusing. There was a man at Prince George Hospital who was bleeding profusely. What happened? His penis had been cut off. And who did it? His wife. Her name? Lorena Bobbitt. This is a narrative that many of you know, but what many of you won't be familiar with is exactly how this happened. How did Lorena Bobbitt become Lorena Bobbitt? And beyond that, what variables and societal implications contributed to the Lorena Bobbitt phenomenon we're all familiar with? Well, to answer that, we need to go back to the beginning. Lorena Gallo was born in Ecuador in 1969, before eventually moving to Venezuela, where she was raised. And it was during her childhood there that Lorena fell in love with American culture and this notion of the American dream. So she decided she wanted to move to the U.S. She visited America when she was 16, and she was given the trip to come visit as a quinceanera gift, and she just fell in love with life here. When Lorena got here, she didn't speak a word of English, and she learned by taking ESL classes and watching soap operas and The Price is Right on TV whenever she could. She was here on a student visa, and she started taking classes at Northern Virginia Community College. And between taking classes, she worked as a manicurist at a salon owned by a woman named Jana Basuti. In fact, Jana owned three salons, and she took Lorena under her wing, and they became fast friends. It was at a dance hall near Quantico that Lorena was approached by a handsome Marine, a lance corporal named John Wayne Bobbitt. John was from Niagara Falls. When growing up, his father was not really in the picture. And there's a few of the sad details about John's childhood was that his father drank and beat his mother, which caused a really volatile environment. By age three, John and his two brothers were taken away from his mother due to drug use and neglect, and they were sent to live with an aunt and uncle. When John was old enough, he enlisted in the Marines, which ultimately brought him to Virginia, which then brought him to this dance hall where he met Lorena. And Lorena was and still is stunning and exotic. And when the two met, apparently the attraction was undeniable. In an interview for the Amazon documentary, Lorena, she said, I thought John was very handsome, blue eyes, a man in uniform. You know, he was almost like a symbol, a Marine fighting for the country. I believed in this beautiful country and I was swept off my feet. I wanted my American dream. So they started dating and things moved quickly and the pair got married nine months later in 1988. 
Their wedding was small and performed by a justice of the peace, and Lorena expected marital bliss to ensue, but that's not exactly what happened. So the domestic abuse started almost immediately, and by 91, John had been discharged from the Marines, and he found himself without a steady paycheck, and this prompted the then 22-year-old Lorena to become the breadwinner of the family. During this time, Lorena worked as a nanny in the Virginia area, and she continued to work at the beauty salon owned by her good friend, Jana. And in this Amazon series, Lorena said that one month after she and John were married, the two were driving in the car and John started driving erratically. Lorena asked him to stop, placing her hands on the steering wheel and trying to straighten out their route. And it was in this moment that John allegedly punched her for the first time. And this wouldn't be the last time. More fighting ensued, and escalated. Both called 911 on each other, but the violence continued. And being the breadwinner, Lorena felt immense pressure to provide for them, to the point where she actually started embezzling money from the salon where she worked, over $7,000. And remember Jana, the store owner who had become so close with Lorena? She realized what was going on. So she actually let Lorena keep her job at the salon, but made her pay back the money with interest. She knew she was having these awful times at home. But remember, it's 1993. It's Manassas, Virginia. Lorena has newly arrived in this country relatively. Her family's not here. And there were very little resources for her to turn to as far as getting out of her situation. Um, at that time, I didn't have the resources uh, like we have now, for example, uh, uh, cell phones, uh, the internet. So I couldn't really search for any resources or there is no hotline. The uh, Violence Against Women's Act was not, uh, was in, in diapers basically, it didn't really exist. Like I said, women did not, when I called the police, um, the dispatchers of the 911 didn't know how to help me because they didn't know how to handle uh, victims of domestic violence or the police either. And I had to sleep in my car many times. Shelters, uh, there's no shelters in my community. Uh, There was uh, one shelter that it was for homeless. There was no domestic violence shelters. Even now, there's still one shelter and provide 18 beds in my community of uh, almost a million people. My family was in, uh, I'm from Ecuador and I grew up in Venezuela. So my family was in Venezuela. I came from Venezuela and uh, my family away from home was a a very sweet, nice family um, that took me in, um, friends of my family. And uh, John did isolate me from them. I have no idea what was that about and a little by little he also isolated me from my friends there's no way that i i have i can have phone calls because he got jealous i didn't see the red flags um of that i didn't see those signs you know uh when i met him was basically he was a nice guy i mean um he was very charming i i was very uh, young naive uh, girl anyways he was my first love so I wasn't sure what was going on with this and Lorena was not only being abused she was so isolated remember she didn't have any family in this country so she had you know just think about that you you it's your second language you don't have any family in this country you marry this guy that's supposed to be your dream guy and then he just starts beating you and you're also 22 and you become the breadwinner yeah yeah it's a lot to take on 
As time moved on, things didn't get any easier. Lorena and John's house went into foreclosure. They would break up and make up and rinse and repeat. More turbulence came when Lorena learned that she was pregnant. And when asked later about this time, John and Lorena tell different stories about how this exactly went down. According to Lorena, she was excited to start a family and told John the news, and he was less than thrilled to hear about it. She said that John didn't think he was ready to be a dad and threatened to leave if Lorena wanted to keep the baby. So Lorena didn't have anyone else in this country. She was in her early 20s and didn't want to raise a baby on her own, understandably. So according to John, he and Lorena agreed that it wasn't the right time for two of them to have a kid, and they decided on an abortion together. But she claims that John was the one who suggested she get the abortion or he'll leave. So by June 22nd of 1993, John and Lorena had been married for about four years. And it's on this day that the subject of separating and possibly divorcing had come up in conversation between the two. This conversation was heated, and afterwards, Lorena went to the police station to ask whether or not she could get a protective order against John. The police said yes, she could, but they said it would take about three hours to process all the paperwork for the situation, and for whatever reason, Lorena didn't want to wait the three hours, and then she left or was forced to leave. And that same evening, John had a friend named Robert Johnson staying with them, so John took his buddy out for some good old-fashioned drinking. When John and Robert got back from the bars, Robert went to his guest room and John got into bed and fell asleep and he was severely intoxicated. Then, as Lorena tells it, John sexually assaulted her and forcibly raped her. After that, Lorena went to the kitchen to get some water. In the kitchen, she sees a knife sitting next to the kitchen sink and she picks it up. She goes back into the bedroom, and then she slices John's penis off. And since John was so heavily intoxicated, he didn't really realize or feel or understand the gravity of what was going on. And he certainly didn't understand how severe or serious his injury was until moments later. He laid in bed momentarily as blood started to pool on the sheets. And once he did realize what Lorena had done, he screamed, he woke up his friend Robert, and the two of them rushed to the hospital. And while this is all happening, Lorena is speeding off in her 1991 Mercury Capri as fast as she could. And she told ABC News in a 1993 interview that she was so distraught after she had maimed her husband that she wasn't even aware of the fact that she was holding the penis when she got into her car. And once this registered to her, she throws it out of the car window and then drove over to her friend Jana's house. Jana said that when she saw Lorena at her door crying, she believed that John again had done something to hurt Lorena. And Jana was well aware of his track record of abusing her. So when Lorena told her that she had cut John's penis off, Jana's mouth was on the floor. Sobbing, Lorena gave her a rough estimate as where the location was that she threw the penis out the window, and it was in a field across the street from a 7-Eleven. Within 10 minutes of the incident, John was at Prince William Hospital. And as he was being examined, the doctors determined that John had actually lost a third of his blood volume by this point. So there were two things happening when he was in the ER. The doctors wanted to make sure John didn't die, and they also wanted to reattach his penis. But there was just one problem. They didn't have the penis, and they didn't know where it was. But the police were trying to remedy that. By now, the investigators were on board, and they had learned where Lorena had tossed the penis out while she was driving, so they had a team of officers searching for it. And just an aside, I was watching that Amazon documentary, Lorena, and they interviewed the doctor. And when he was called, this was in the middle of the night, he was on call and he was a urologist. 
and had heard what happened, he was preparing to do a procedure that would pull his urethra out and he was going to trim the rest of the penis. So he would have to sit down like a woman. Like if they didn't find the penis, that's what they would have had to do for him to right. pee. Um, so that's what they were preparing to do. I'm like, oh, you don't have it. I mean, the clock is ticking. Appendage is going to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. If it's not found right away and put on ice. So everyone was freaking out that this guy might lose his penis forever. As Billy said, the police were searching for it by that field at 7-Eleven because they had found out from Jana at that point where it was like where Lorena had thrown it. And the situation was looking grim because when the police got there, this field was huge and there was really tall grass everywhere. And they really doubted whether they would find this penis in time for it to still be viable for reattachment. Because back at the hospital, John was being prepped for emergency surgery and was starting to panic and freak out and lose hope that he would be penisless for the rest of his life. But in a stroke of good luck or good detective work, the police found the dismembered penis. They ran it into the 7-Eleven. They put it on ice and they put it in a brown hot dog bag and ran it to the hospital to give to surgeons who would be working on John. And it was nearly 6 a.m. when John was finally taken into the operating room for what would end up being a nine-hour surgery. So now the process of reattaching a penis is actually not that difficult as far as reattaching appendages goes. And I was shocked about this because it seems like it would be extremely difficult. The doctor who did it had never done one before. Really? Yes. So I thought that was fascinating. And because it is, fingers are harder. I mean, penises don't move on their own without blood rushing into them. You know what I mean? Fingers have right. muscles. So you're you're having to deal with a lot more nerves in your finger that need to reattach and be able to communicate with your brain to move. A penis doesn't really need that in the same way. Um, it just needs stimulation so blood can rush to it. So it is the easiest, probably the easiest of the appendages, according to this doctor who did it. Shocking. Okay. So the penis is essentially made up of arteries, veins, nerves, and then there's the urethra. And typically the way that the penis was severed impacts how easy it is to repair. And if the cut is clean, like it was in Bobbitt's case, it's much easier to reconnect. So he was super lucky. And when John woke up from surgery, the doctors told him that they had successfully reattached his penis. Right. And on the heels of what you said, though, so in cases where there have been cases where women are raped or assaulted, and if you bite a penis off, your odds of reattaching it are really low. Really it's low. A For, it's a mess. And the bacteria just causes the appendage to be a lot less viable a lot more quickly. Um, so in those you hear you've heard about those cases, they do them on they have it on Law and Order SVU all the time, too. It's they have it in movies, you see that. And in those situations, you wouldn't be able to reattach the same way, not with this kind right. of success. And while the surgery was a success and without complications, they still moved John to the ICU, but not for reasons you're probably thinking. They moved in there because the Washington Post had caught wind of the story. So word was spreading, the media was already starting to swarm at the hospital. Lorena was arrested that evening, and by then, the story was everywhere. She was facing charges of malicious wounding and looking at up to 20 years in prison if convicted. And you can you can see that this would happen just having worked um, in, in newspapers. You have sources. It's not even just sources. You have sources at... Um, at the hospitals, if you hear that somebody's penis was cut off, that is going to travel throughout the hospital. Somebody, this is even before social media, somebody's going to call their friend who works with uh, the newspaper. It's going to happen no matter what. So you don't right. need social media for something like this to happen or cell phones. 
Well, and what we what we were talking about at the top of the episode, where when the initial calls came in about this, and we said the information was confused, so the dispatchers were actually speaking, trying to avoid the term. They kept saying he's been maimed. Right. There's an appendage because they didn't want to say it because obviously journalists listens to police listen to police radios. So and they knew that and they interviewed the dispatcher and she's like, I was trying not to be too explicit because I knew they would cling to this, like you just said, Billy, where it's like oh, a good, juicy, domestic husband, wife, you know, femme fatale story. And they knew that. We're all familiar with Lorena Bobbitt's name, but have we ever really thought about why? Why almost 30 years later, we know about this case and why we're still talking about it when no one died. The stakes are lower compared to other crimes that have drawn this kind of media attention. So John's penis was reattached and was functional again. He still got his penis. It's not even like he was permanently maimed. I think it's because draw to this story was not about the tangible elements of what happened. It was about the messages and how Lorena's actions challenged the status quo, especially in a place like Virginia. And Lorena's actions demanded attention and demanded progress. It was sort of a rebellion against the tolerance of domestic violence. I think it's a combination of everything. I mean, first of all, uh, yeah, um, a lot of people, for the nature of the case, uh, people were infatuated um, to turn on the TV. Cameras were not. That was the first time that cameras were allowed in the courtroom. And uh, they were actually doing an experiment to to bring court cases into living rooms, you know, of, of uh, homes in America, you know. And so when... My case happened, uh, Court TV was a baby, you know, like uh, they they actually had, it was a gift for them, my case. So it, they were very excited and, and all they wanted to do, the ratings were up, um, the salacious uh stories came up and people were actually infatuated about that. It was a combination of everything. I was an immigrant. I'm an immigrant. I was young. And there's a lot of issues about immigrant women. Uh, immigrant women suffer a lot because they don't call the police. Um, so, you know, the support, the part, the, the way how uh, the media treated me um, as a blood Latina, you know, that was an issue of racism. So people were into, you know, those kind of issues. So it was a combination of everything. Uh, and also I think, you know, men felt vulnerable because I threatened, you know, I, I caught my ex-husband masculinity and they believed that masculine, their, their penis was or is everything. And, you know, so they felt threatened that maybe and maybe that's why, you know, they turned into a joke to neutralize um, this kind of, uh, you know, situation that it was, it, there's no way, you know, they couldn't believe that, that something like that happened, such a thing happened. So Lorraine was charged with malicious wounding immediately. But once Lorraine's side of the story leaked to the press, women's group made themselves heard. They were outraged that John wasn't facing charges, rightfully so. But charging John had some difficult implications. Mm -hmm. And here's why. So at the time in Virginia and in about 50% of the other states in America, there were pretty archaic laws as far as spousal rape is concerned. In Virginia, if you were to be convicted of spousal rape, you'd be facing a possible life sentence. And qualifying for these charges was really difficult. In order for the charges to apply, the two spouses would need to be separated when the sexual assault occurred. And another contingency was the assault would have needed to result in permanent bodily damage. 
So if you break this down, it meant that even if the couple was separated and the husband raped his wife, if he managed to do it without permanently maiming her, he wouldn't qualify for this charge at all. So instead, John was charged with marital sexual abuse, which carried a possible 20-year sentence instead of the max of life that applied in the spousal rape charges. John and Lorena were going to have separate trials. And the questions that were asked in each were this. Is he a habitual batterer who forced a young woman over the edge? Or was she this calculated, hot-blooded Latina who wanted to hurt her husband when he threatened to leave her and just fabricated this rape to justify it? A lot of people, men mostly, feel very, you know, compassionate just for the nature of uh, the case. Uh, You know, he lost his... Uh, male organ. And so absolutely, uh, the country was divided into two. Uh, Women were supported of me and uh, especially, you know, advocates and uh, activists, uh, feminist groups, etc. And just women in in general. Um, And men were, you know, with him. So I was the one who basically was against men or they were portraying me that way so uh, that uh that was a gender inequality basically um and still um i think that uh, you know we still live in a patriarchal society John's trial commenced in November of 1993, and the court determined that his case had a quote-unquote sexual component. So this meant that the news networks needed permission to film and air the trial on national TV from the defense and from John. And of course, John's defense declined. So John's whole thing was he wanted his dignity intact. He didn't feel he should have to testify in front of the world, things like that. They did not know how to charge him, basically. So they end up charging him uh, for a marital rape, but um, they did not charge him with domestic violence. And, um, you know, his uh, trial lasted three days and uh, my trial lasted 12 days. So it was unfortunately that we couldn't even talk about domestic violence on his trial. During the proceedings, the jury was instructed to consider the night in question, and they could only also consider what went on in John and Lorena's relationship within the five days prior to the incident, which is very restricting if you're trying to prove a pattern of abuse. In fact, it basically sabotages her defense entirely. And this was because of the laws in Virginia at the time, which did not look favorably upon sexual assault victims. Prosecutors grilled Lorena about these five days on the stand. In one instance, Lorena testified that John forced her to have sex one day, but then stated that she consented to sex the following day. So the prosecutor essentially mocked and berated her in a tone that suggested she was lying. How could a woman consent one day and be raped the next? Well, Lorena's response is, sometimes she just gave in and said yes, because he was just going to do it anyway. And like we know, sexual assault and abuse within a marriage is not so black and white. It's just not. You can love your husband one day and he can hurt you the next. And that's not a woman's fault, you know? Well, and in a situation where she's obviously scared of her partner, I mean, her saying yes and giving in those times doesn't mean like she's scared and she's being forced into it some of those times as well. So it's just, it is very gray and it's hard to prove either way. 
Of course, and domestic abuse victims feel they're always hoping that their their partner will go back to the person they met. How it was. When, yeah. Exactly. So if if their husband occasionally shows like a glimpse of love or shows a glimpse of how it was in the beginning, a woman will get excited and cling to that, like maybe things are changing now. So of course it makes sense that she'd con- consent one day and not the next. It's just a ridiculous thing to press her on. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on the realreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. So during the trial, John denied ever forcibly having sex with Lorena. He denied hitting her. He called her a liar and blamed all the relationship's problems on her. He cited her temper as the reason for fighting in the relationship. And the only admission he did make in terms of any physical altercations between them was that there had been some quote-unquote pushing and shoving in their relationship. And what we have to remember about this entire trial is that we're talking about consensual sex versus forced rape. It's a he said, she said kind of thing, and there isn't always evidence. It's about credibility. And remember, this is the 1990s. We're in a super conservative courtroom. Lorena is an immigrant from Central America, and English is her second language. Oh, and she's a woman. And we're in a state where to be indicted for spousal rape, someone has to have caused permanent disfigurement and or maiming the victim. There wasn't much confidence that John was going to be found guilty. And he wasn't. He was acquitted. So, um, and he ended up being acquitted. Um, I think the outcome would have been different if we would have, uh, even now, um, we would talk about, you know, his trial now. So I, I believe that he would have been convicted. So 
a lot of things have changed, but um, you know, little by little, we we seem to step in the make t- steps in the right direction, and uh, but still, um, a lot uh, more, much more work needs to be done. Even though cameras weren't allowed in the courtroom, John's trial got a lot of coverage, but it was nothing compared to that of Lorena's trial. This case had all the trappings of what we've seen at spectacles such as the Ted Bundy execution or the OJ trial. People were selling t-shirts. One shirt said Manassas VA, a cut above the rest. And then there were boxer shorts that were sold that said Manassas VA, don't cut me short. Remember, it's the 90s and everyone in America was having a honeymoon period with outlets like Court TV. And it really was the precursor to reality TV when you think about it. The characters in this trial, they were a tabloid dream. And this time the world would get to watch every second of what was playing out. All right. So remember during John's trial, his case was determined to have sexual components. Therefore, he and his lawyers were given the choice about having the proceedings televised, you know, to protect his privacy and his dignity. And for whatever reason, Lorena was not extended that same courtesy. They concluded that Lorena's case was not a case with a sexual component, even though the case was about Lorena cutting off a sexual organ in response to being raped by her partner. So in my opinion, personally, I interpret this to mean that the political powers that be in Manassas at the time didn't really care to preserve her dignity. They wanted to publicly condemn Lorena and make an example out of her. Abuse victims can't retaliate. That's the message they're they're sending here. And we're going to put this on display for the world to see. First of all, uh, they got it wrong. They missed a big opportunity uh, to talk about this crisis of domestic violence and sexual assault. They always talk, wanted to talk about the sensationalistic and the lurid details, details about, uh, you know, me cutting off my ex-husband's uh, penis off. So it's really sad that the media, you know, portray me as a crazy hot-blooded Latina, which is basically a racist statement as well. So I wanted to set the record straight that a lot of women who actually wanted to talk about the issues of domestic violence and sexual assault couldn't because uh, the boss were men. So Lorena's trial started on January 10th of 1994. When she pulled up in her car to enter the courtroom, there was a barrage of flashbulbs and a mob of more than 200 reporters from around the world. Journalists as far as Japan had flown in for this case. There were more than 20 satellite news trucks that lined up the streets. The atmosphere at the courthouse was extremely tense. According to a Newsweek poll that was conducted at the time, it said 60% of the country was planning to watch this trial unfold. So it was a huge, huge deal. And the stakes were high for Lorena. She was facing 20 years for maliciously wounding John. But what a lot of people don't know is that prior to the trial, the prosecution had offered Lorena a plea deal. They said that if she admitted to the fact of cutting John's penis was a premeditated action, she would only get four months in jail and then probation. Lorena refused. She wasn't going to admit to something that wasn't true. And also, if she pleaded guilty to a felony, she more than likely would never get an American citizenship. And this was just something that she didn't want to risk giving up. So imagine the stress and pressure of this whole situation. Lorena at this time was only 24 years old, and that's 10 years younger than Alexis and I. And I think that we forget how young she was at the time that all this happened. It's intense. And when you see the old footage of the trial coverage, you see her being pulled up in a car in the back and she just looks devastated to be in the middle of this. It, it really is sad. 
And another thing that's sad is there was obviously media bias as well, because so many of these details about this abuse was not and is not commonly known. I mean, the whole world was watching my trial. I mean, literally. So I'm, I was very recognizable because a lot of their, there were, um, more of the, the bosses, like I said, there who were in journalism were men. So the opportunity was not only lost in this chaos of, uh, you know, the uh, sensationalistic story, but it was actually lost because the patriarchal society there was among the male reporters or male bosses who were in the uh, 24-7 uh, cycle, media cycle. Opening arguments commenced. We have is Lorena Bobbitt's life juxtaposed against John Wayne Bobbitt's penis. The evidence will show that in her mind, it was his penis from which she could not escape, which caused her the most pain, the most fear, the most humiliation. And I submit to you, that at the end of this case, you will come to one conclusion, and that is that a life is more valuable than a penis. Now, luckily, in this trial, the jury would and could hear everything about Lorena and John's relationship, and Lorena was not restricted to talking about just the five days of their relationship that happened prior to the incident. She could talk about the abuse that started from day one, and she did. He kicked me. He told me that I told you to not to cry. And he slapped me on my face. He pulled my hair. And he squeezed my face. I was with my stomach down. And he, uh, he, he did it. He, 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 um, he, he had about anal sex. Did he ask you if he could? No. Witnesses recalled in their testimony really supported Lorena's version of events. And the testimony was very disturbing. And remember, these are friends of John's. It's not like these are Lorena's friends testifying that they heard this. Friends of John's said that John had told them that he loved forced sodomy, that he laughed about making women bleed during sex, that forced sex excited him. If these are John's friends, why would they say this if this wasn't true? Others said that they had seen Lorena with bruising on her face, on her arms, on her legs. Neighbors saw her caking makeup on her face and trying to hide bruises. And they would see John forcing Lorena to carry heavy things as he walked behind her casually. He told friends that he liked to rape Lorena explicitly. And Lorena's friends and people knew Lorena testified as well. I again witnessed extensive bruising over the top and sides of Ms. Bobbitt's skull into her hairline and face line and down her neck and shoulders again as before. I did not, however, notice that all through the rest of her body as before. Her depression was very noticeable. Her sadness was very noticeable. And occasionally when she was doing my nails, she would burst into tears. There is testimony that detailed how there were tests conducted on Lorena the day of the incident. And these tests confirmed that Lorena did have sex or she had been raped before she cut off John's penis. However, John completely denied having any sexual contact with Lorena at all that day, even though there was proof that he was lying. And in fact, John's story about how things unfolded changed several times, and this dinged his credibility. Uh, I know not after that, she just 
Some of the most compelling testimony came from a neighbor of Lorena and John's who heard things that night. I hear people having sex every once in a while. These, these, weren't, the, these weren't the same. How did they differ? They, they differed a lot of times uh, other than headboard hitting the wall. It was... It wasn't rhythmic. This, this, this woman was, was having was screaming. I mean, she would scream out every few seconds, and then it just continued. He was drunk. He wanted to have sex. She didn't. That's her right. He forced her to have sex. She was angry, and she retaliated against him. But, you know, folks, we don't live in a society that is governed by revenge. We don't live in a society in which whoever has the biggest knife wins. It was probably one of the most bizarre acts that has happened in this country in a long, long time. Everything about this case, it is so unique. What she did, going out of that house with a Game Boy, a penis in the hand, everything about this case is crazy and bizarre. This is a classic case of irresistible impulse. After the last witnesses were called and each side made their closing arguments, the jury was sent into deliberation. And the world was on the edge of their seat waiting for this verdict. Members of the jury, have you reached a verdict in the case? Yes, yes. Is this your unanimous verdict? Yes, yes. Would the defendant please stand? In the case of Commonwealth of Virginia versus Lorena Lenore Bobbitt, criminal number 33821, we, the jury, find the defendant, Lorena Lenore Bobbitt, not guilty of malicious wounding as charged in the indictment by reason of insanity. Signed, Clay S. Kokalis, four persons. Need the counsel wish for the jury to be found. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, let me thank you for the time and effort that you put into this matter. It has taken two weeks. At this time, I'll ask all parties to remain in the courtroom and be quiet. And what a lot of people don't realize or don't remember is that Lorena Bobbitt was actually found not guilty. And she was found not guilty due to insanity causing an irresistible impulse to sexually wound John. So as a result of that, she could not be held liable for her actions. Yes, that is correct. I was fine, no guilty. I don't have any criminal record. And um, a lot of people think that, you know, I went to jail or went to prison for a long time or, you know, what happened really. So uh, we actually, we both found uh, not guilty. He was too, of, uh, he was accused of um, uh, marital rape. The most interesting thing about this is that I didn't know she was found not guilty. I didn't. Just from from everything I heard, again, me and Jack were too young for this to understand and, and watch the trial, but I had no idea just because what you hear about her, what the jokes that are made, the the assumption is that she was found guilty and probably got in trouble for this, but that's not actually true. 
So rape is rape. It doesn't matter. It's a crime and, and, and victim is a victim. So whether it's a woman or it's a child, you know, to get a sexual assault, why they make fun of, of me? Why they fa- make fun of or make um, uh, songs about, about it and, and uh, take it, you know, but that is um, the culture that we live in. People were uneducated about domestic violence at that time. Now there is awareness, more people, more advocates educating our society. And uh, that is great to see. So after the trial, the media obsession with John and Lorena didn't taper off. That's because from one side, there was an uproar over Lorena's acquittal. And there was also resounding support for her acquittal on the other side. Women's groups from around the world saw this as progress. If an immigrant woman from Central America can be acquitted for castrating her white husband after she was just sexually assaulted after a relationship of abuse in small town Virginia, then maybe this meant things were changing. Celebrities, politicians from all over the world were weighing in. Everyone had an opinion. And it showed up in a lot of places in pop culture. It was actually the cold open of the January 15, 1994 episode of Saturday Night Live with Mike Myers playing John Wayne Bobbitt on the witness stand before another pop culture criminal, Tanya Harding, comes by and beats his crotch repeatedly with a bat. And the media coverage continued, but there was only one of them who was stoking the fire. Under Virginia law, a contingency of Lorena's acquittal was that since she was declared insane during that brief time period when the incident occurred, she needed to undergo a psych evaluation, and she was sent to a mental hospital for 45 days. After those 45 days were up, the court and her doctors reevaluated her mental state, and they ultimately decided that she was no harm to herself or to others, and she was released. And while this is all happening, John was making the rounds on the talk show circuit. He was a guest on radio shows and TV segments, and then six months later, he made a really bold move. Right, so after the trial, John moved to Las Vegas, and there he met porn legend Ron Jeremy, and clearly... Ron must have inspired him in some unique way because six months after the trial, John starred in an adult film, John Wayne Bobbitt, uncut. And during an interview with Vanity Fair, John explained of the adult film, quote, a porno seemed like the best way to show my penis worked, only it wasn't all the way healed yet. I realize now that that was the point. And I really think it's worth discussing that John Bobbitt following the trial just did the manliest things publicly. He went and he moved to a ranch and he was like a cowboy and he was like lassoing cattle and doing interviews dressed as a cowboy. It's like, we get it. (laughs) Your penis still works. Well, it's like, we get it. And, you know, we will talk about this in killing time about men just being blubbering idiots sometimes, but it's like his manhood was literally cut off his body. So for him, that's probably the biggest nightmare for a man. So it's like, I'm going to do a porn and show it still works. And I'm, I'm going to go get yeah. a horse and I'm going to go to women in a pornography film. And it's like to show that I'm still a man. Exactly. Yeah. Two on the nose, John Bobbitt, like two on the nose. Yeah. Build a house. Yeah, that would have been more subtle. Like build a house shirtless. Or, or like, I don't know. Let them go, you yeah, building like, a house. <laughs> well, and the thing, he didn't have a job either, right? So he probably was feeling quite emasculated for a while. So like maybe go go get a career. Put on a suit. Something. Get a nice pair of dress shoes. But he was also, 
showing his true colors because shortly before the release of his porn, John was charged with misdemeanor domestic battery against his new girlfriend, Christina Elliott. These charges further supported Lorena's side of the story. He served 12 days of a 15-day sentence. But that negative press didn't sway John from still seeking the spotlight and trying to prove how much of a man he still was. He made a second porn, Frankenpenis, which made its debut in 1996. Now, why would John do another porn? Did the world need two John Bobbitt sex tapes? Probably not, but John had agreed to do it after accepting an offer from Howard Stern for reconstructive plastic surgery for his penis to enlarge it even further. And he was not going to be turning that down. Gross. So Howard Stern talked about the case frequently on his show. And he had John Bobbitt on as a guest in 1993 for his New Year's Eve special. And they raised $250,000 to help cover the outstanding costs of his surgery. And in one interview, Howard was quoted as saying, and this is one of the most disgusting quotes I've ever heard, quote, I don't even buy this whole story that he was raping her. She's not that great looking disgusting it's it really is like one of the most uh enraging comments that i've probably ever heard in my entire life but aside from all this like howard stern trash there was also a handful of incidents of copycat crimes after this situation and they're called bobbit mania and it was after the incident most of them were self-inflicted wounds but it was a whole thing that was happening and there was also the bobbit worm which was a worm that attacks its prey with scissor-like jaws. And this is named after the case as well. Is so there was all this pop. No, it's an actual worm. Like a real worm that. A real worm. Yeah, oh, they, they named they a new species a of worm. Yes. Bobbit yes. worm. The Bobbit worm. Come on, scientists. Do better than that. Do better. That's crazy. You know, the, you know, the person that named it too was probably like, ha, I got it. <laughs> I'm so clever. <laughs> yeah. Idiots. Let me guess, it was probably a man. So, sure. so eventually the media coverage of the Bobbits did taper off, but the pop culture implications were there to stay. And while no doubt Lorena experienced great difficulty during this period in her life, she managed to turn this entire thing into something positive and find a silver lining. Um, so it's been uh, basically almost 30 years, three decades uh, has passed since uh, since it happened. There was a documentary that aired last year about my story. The documentary that Lorena is referring to is the Amazon docuseries, Lorena. And now uh, I doing, I'm doing a lifetime movie. So I think it is important to keep the issues of domestic violence and sexual violence um, it is an incredible, um, you know, platform to be able to uh, to show the stories uh, in a visual uh, way. Like a visual, people have to visualize sometimes and say, "Listen, I wanted to show this. I wanted to be transparent. I wanted to be, you know, very raw when I talk about it. And this is exactly what I I made this this story. So I wanted to people to look at it and say, "Look, this is this is real. This is what happened. Uh, this is real life." And so I want people to connect with my story because there's a lot of uh, women trapped in situations of domestic violence that they don't know what to do and I want to 
to see my movie to basically inspire to get away from from this abusive situation that they live if they are in a relationship that is abused. So I think it's an incredible platform. I think it's not only an incredible platform, but it is um, an education as well um, for future generations to know that these critical issues do exist still now. And these discussions are particularly timely given what's happening in the current state of the world. Especially now with, uh, uh, you know, one of the uh, unfortunate results of the coronavirus or COVID-19 is uh, is really affecting uh, the rise in domestic violence and sexual violence uh, cases among women. Um, So many women feel that they're trapped in their homes. Uh, with their abusers. So as a survivor of domestic violence, I understand at first hand about the issues and um, I want to help the victims. And I wanted to provide uh, by providing resources and and guidance. So my story is uh, relatable uh, in so many levels, especially now, like I said. So it's very important to to have this communications about these critical issues open. Lorena took back her maiden name, Lorena Gallo. She resumed working in salons and she quietly started dating a man named David. And she's still with David to this day, more than 20 years later. And they eventually had a daughter named Olivia. I, I found that people were, my friends were very supportive. My community was, uh, yeah, I mean, they recognized me. I never move out of my community because uh, if I move, I mean, I will be recognized everywhere. Um, it didn't affect my career. Thank God. I was, uh, I did real estate for a while. I um, I was, a, uh, I went back to the beauty industry as a, I, t- I went to school and I had my license as a real uh a hairstyle and uh, I did hair for a living for a while and then I went to school and and the school obviously a lot of people recognize me um, just based on you know my my face who I am um, I wasn't gonna change myself so I learned to accept the fact that um, I did not choose to be in the spotlight um, you know and uh uh, the fact that, but accepting myself was very strength. Was one of my uh, my strength that kept me through who I am and those past uh, my life, my my trauma. Uh, actually, have helped shape the person that I am today. And uh, you know, he have actually understand that gave me a platform to help others. So um, when I met my partner. You know, obviously, he knew who I was, um, and so friendship, uh, friendship turning to respect, and respect turning to love, and you know, that's that's how it was. I didn't experience that with my with John. In two thousand seven, Lorena started a nonprofit called the Lorena Gallo Foundation, which is an organization focused on helping to prevent domestic violence through family oriented activities. And as more years passed, awareness and condemnation of domestic violence increased as women started pushing back for their rights. The view of Lorena also shifted. And the more time passed, the more it was clear how terrible Lorena was treated, not only by John, but by the rest of the world too. 
they have grown um, more empathy this generation as well. I mean, you know, more, I mean, I'm talking to you. You were probably not even born. I don't know, but you very you look very young. Ah, thanks, Lorena. So you know, at that time that um, we're talking about almost thirty years. So you know, I think that the new generation has grown to be more empathetic and more sympathetic about the stories and more curious and you know more women in the rise. I mean, we have more politician women in Congress, so that helped a lot and to shape you know the narrative about abused women, and uh, that's important. I know what my story is, and uh, I was lucky to get approached, um, you know, by Amazon um, last year, and uh, they did a very good job. I'm happy with the docu series. Um, Jordan Peele was wonderful. He's uh, he's a man who does a lot of uh, social issues, so I trusted him and the whole team of Amazon back then. Um, same thing with uh, Lifetime. Uh, Lifetime, it's uh, an amazing network, and the history of telling, you know, uh, stories that um, relate uh, to to people, and they're very. Uh, read the stories, the real stories with sensitivity, I think that that is actually uh, got my passion back to to even tell even more that I know that they're um, going to treat my story with um, sensitivity and respect. In the lifetime project that Lorena is referring to is called I Was Lorena Bobbitt, and it premiered on Memorial Day two days ago on the Lifetime Network. I'm doing good. I'm doing fine. I I am in a happy place. I am in a better place. Um, I don't live, you know, in the past. Um, I think that the past did have helped me uh, to shape the person that I am today. And it have given me a platform to be able to help other women and, uh, you know, anybody who is in an abusive relationship. Um, so it's um, it's good. Is good now. I'm going to keep my mission to help um, victims of domestic violence and, and survivors because our survivors also have PTSD and they need assistance as well. Well, super, super big thank you to Lorena for sharing her story with us. Um, if you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook page. Just search the first degree in the search bar and uh, stick around because we're going to kill some time. And remember, only you could prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not, but that, not close. that close. It might have actually been the same time. No, it wasn't. <laughs> happy, happy day, whatever day it is. Happy popsicle day. Grape sucks. Bye. Sources for today's episode include ABC, Vanity Fair, Amazon's documentary series, Lorena, Rolling Stone, court documents, court footage, and as always, our first-degree interview is always our largest source.
All right. Well, welcome to another episode of Killing Time. I thought Alexis just sent me an email that said best friends. Hello. But it wasn't. But it, wasn't. it was <laughs> an email about best fiends. Um, and she got confused and excited by my spontaneous love for her. I did. I thought you were just reminding me as we started to record that we are best friends and that because Alexis gets nervous about this like social distancing thing that she can't touch people and she thinks that means that people are mad at her. Yeah. Well, like because <laughs> people aren't hugging me goodbye or hello and I feel like this weird distance and um, any social distance hang. I'm like when I leave, are we in a fight? Are, I mean, are we good? <laughs> just makes, I just feel like everyone's mad at everyone. <laughs> the love We're is not because it's okay all right later bye yeah it feels like a dude like a fist bump and i'm like not even you know mm. air air fist bump is not enough affection for me is your love language uh physical touch yeah and words of valid uh words of affirmation affirmation mm-hmm. i can't gifts all of them <laughs> i need <laughs> i need to be barraged by all of the love languages to feel a little you know, bit okay about myself that's what that's what i think too when you know i think about what my love languages are i'm like i them all i don't know Acts of i want service gift. yes gifts yes affirmation yes quality time hello yes <laughs> touch absolutely all of them all I'm of them. love lingual <laughs> What about you, Billy? What's your lo- uh, love language? Just to, just to be left alone. I was going to say isolation. <laughs> True yeah. isolation is Billy's love language. Yeah, so I, so I'm feeling the love Separation. right now, all, all yeah. over the place with it with this uh, with this pandemic. Well, you know what? Something that was so funny is uh, Jared and I did an episode of the Lady Gang, and one of my questions was, uh, "What's the sweetest thing that either both of us have done for each other?" And his answer was that I leave him alone. <laughs> wow, Jared I'm like, Savage. Number one, number one. This is a lie because all he wants to do is like smother me with affection all the time. But I'm like, this is a very interesting answer that you like to be left alone and that's the nicest thing I've ever done for you. I love that savage response. Cause I think he was just fucking flexing on your love episode in a, in a Jer yeah. way. He probably was like, sorry, love he, you. Was that okay? Afterwards. <laughs> he said that he thought about it for weeks on end and he, he's like, it was the wrong answer. I didn't mean it. But the way he said it was very <laughs> sweet where it's like, we're allowed to be independent and have our own time and be able to like, you know, wind down on our own. But he was like, I didn't mean it. I love when you smother me. I need it all the time. Oh my God, Jared. I love that. Oh, there you guys. And also I love the dumb guy voice that you guys both just did. Oh my God. I do it about Billy all the time. Oh, I got to fix the outline. You have a grammatical error. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Is my 18 hours of work not good enough for you? I forgot an apostrophe. I mean, listen, it's a writer. That's the, that's dumb guy voice though. But all guys are dumb guys. I don't care how Billy. I know that you're like a borderline genius, but you're still a dumb guy. Wait a I'm second. Not, don't know. say that kind of shit to him. We'll be hearing about that for weeks. If I call him stupid, he'll be like, "No, Jack said I was a borderline Jack genius." Borderline genius. That's not true. Exactly. Billy, that voice. Billy, what's your IQ? Have you taken an IQ test? I don't know. It's like one sixty-eight, something like that. <laughs> oh my god! I wish genius, your voice really like that. I wish your yeah, voice was you know deep like that. It, it could have okay. Great. That's the new voice. <laughs> the deeper, the dumber, though. Yeah. yeah. 
No, maybe no, that's no, why. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's the sound when I see men walking. That's the sound they all make. <laughs> no, no, it's no, like, no, it's no. like that episode of Family Guy when I think it's Stewie is like playing the trombone in back of people walking, and I'm like, that's it's pretty much how I see every man. <gasps> yeah, you're all just a level of dumb. It just doesn't. You're all you're all there, but what level are you? Yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well. Okay. Well, the reason for this, uh, I was going to say quickie. I'm on the wrong podcast. The reason for this episode of Killing Time is Billy and I both have books that are coming out next Tuesday. Billy's is the paperback version of Chase Darkness with me and mine is our debut book for the lady gang called Act Like a Lady. And it's weird that they're both coming out on the same day. It is. We would have we would have been able to do a joint some sort of tour or something like that. And the books are so similar too. That's the so thing. similar. I mean, if you love one, you'll love the other. Explain though, like it's different than the first one. My book has uh, it's the same thing as the first one, but it's got a brand new bonus chapter about Bear Brook and how um, that mystery three three quarters of that mystery was solved, and then a bunch of updates on other cases, and it also has eight pages of exhilarating photos, including me in my punk phase. Exhilarating. Slash, slash, slash goth phase, yes. I love Are it. they color or are they black and white? They're black and white. Give me a break. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> we got to have two colors in our book, and that means that we are a fun say. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack, what is the your favorite part of the book? Um, well, yeah, I mean, so it's separated into four parts. So it's like your relationship with your lover, which I hate that word, lover, self, career, and friends. It was obviously the most fun for me to write about love because most of those stories were just like my dating escapades that you know so much about Alexis and Mm -hmm. you also have so many stories. So maybe one day we need to make a true crime slash like intertwined with personal. Yeah, no, we have to. Because we have, I mean, I think together we have the craziest freaking stories, stories in the entire world yeah. of dating in this hellhole of Los Angeles. But so I think that that part of the book is my favorite. I'm going to make Jared read this section about, um, it's basically a list of all the men that I've dated and they all have nicknames. Like there's Mattress Mike who slept with his mattress on the ground, which you have also <laughs> dated one as well. A few of those. Yeah. And then there's a, what about the street performer? Is he in there? Um, the, the street performer is in there. Um, was he a mime? So, no. Have I dated a mime? I can't remember. No, because <laughs> Somebody, Kendra, her friend Kendra is terrified of mimes. She wouldn't have allowed that. Terrified of mimes. No, this guy was a, uh, he was a street performer and then he would make up all these different um, plays that he would perform. No, the superhero no, guy. Different. I have a I have an entire chapter about this guy that dressed up as a superhero on Hollywood Boulevard. That's a whole chapter. But the street performer guy, um, he performed all these plays in public bathrooms and then he would like sell his he would give his script to people for free. So then they could also perform them in other public bathrooms. So that guy was hot. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, then also there's a guy there's a guy named Shad that you dated, right? Shad is the last guy that I dated before Jared, my current boyfriend. Um, and Shad still has my cornhole boards because I went over to his apartment. Who He also lives... I live in Marina Del Rey. He lives literally like two buildings over from me. I went over there. I brought my cornhole boards. We played cornhole. And they're still over there. Yeah. 
and and then Jared flexes and like <laughs> Jared All right, for gonna, over gonna, a year. I'm gonna make some with my uh, with my prayer hands. So there you go. That's what he did. I know. You know, it's a really it's a step up dating Jared. I know but you I just don't think want those, it's so funny. I know you don't want those cornhole boards in your apartment, and that's why you've left them over there. I did leave. That is true. I have nowhere to put them, <laughs> and they were really shitty, cheap cornhole boards. So I'm like, you know, what? you can you can take it's a them. Gift. I hope you have fun with them. They also had have cornhole. They also had spiders all over them, so it was just a. I had to get rid of him somehow, but, um, no, when I started dating Jared, his entire band, I had talked about Shad a few times and we were hanging out and his entire band would not let him live down Shad. What was the Shad connection? Like, what is the funny thing about Shad? I don't remember his name, (laughs) right? Yeah. It's a weird name. It was just, he's such, I mean, Chad is the worst name that you can have as a man, really like the douchebaggy name. And then you put an S on the front of that Shad. Ugh. Shad is just a worse, worse version of Chad. Yeah. Just like shitty. It is a worse, worse version than idiot. Exactly. Just put an yeah. S on the front of something and it makes it like a million times more douchey. Shalexis. I'll fucking say. <laughs> Shalexis. <Shack. laughs> that makes my name better. Shaq is, not, yeah. is fucking solid. Yeah, Shaq is yeah. That should be your new nickname. Not Shaq, not Shaq. Shilly's not bad. Silly, Shilly, Silly's perfect. I think we need to do an SH in front of everything, though. Shalexis, Shilly, and Shaq, pretty solid too. Actually, (laughs) it makes you sound like oh, you know what else you put an S on? Shank the Shank. That's even better than the Tank. (laughs) (laughs) The Shank is like when you get fucking fucking pissed. Yeah, yeah, I'll shank you in a second. Uh, you see that girl over there? She's the shank. <laughs> Don't fuck with her. What's worse? What's scarier, the shank or the tank? The shank. I actually uh, think the tank is scarier. Oh, no. You can see a tank coming. Shank, you don't know, man. It's yeah, right in, of, right in the <laughs> arteries. <laughs> Razor blade connected to a uh, toothbrush. toothbrush. But I, I, think, yeah. I think the shank is, you know, I don't know. It's too literal. Where it's like, you know what the shank means, but the tank, mm, that's ambiguous. Mm-hmm. It's ambiguous. You don't know what's coming. You don't know when it hits you, you know? What kind of gun is strapped to that thing? No one's sure. How many men are in there? How many women are in there? Any dogs in there? Who's to say? Oh, who's to say? Are you going to get the tattoo and am I drawing it for you? I don't know. I have to talk to my, pa- I forgot my parents were in, my, in that Facebook group and they've all like, I've had a lot of backlash about this. I saw um, your dad commented. Yeah, I'm like, okay, great. Uh, I should probably remove them from the group, which I will do. <laughs> and then um, we'll discuss it. Okay, well, if... But I'm thinking I if, probably want to get it. If you do, I would love to draw it. I have yeah. drawn a few tattoos before. And by a few, I mean one. But I, this could be my second. Listen, you're drawing it if it's happening. It'll be like our, our bestie tattoos. Since you won't get one, I'll have it for both of us. <laughs> perfect <laughs> billy anything i would i would like to draw it actually can you draw, can you draw? N- not a, not a bit not at all then i'm <laughs> solid but thanks <laughs> billy what tattoo of yours am i drawing because this is how this is how we're going to be bonded forever um i don't know what uh a, gi- a giraffe a giraffe yeah why is it inside kind of joke like, i don't I'm remember like a big, sort of tall like a tall giraffe type person. I don't okay. know. No, you're like a crane <laughs> or a stork. 
Oh my god, like he's a, a stuck crane or like a buzzard, a tall buzzard. <laughs> yeah, like buzzard. a like a dark crane with that crane. really long dangling <laughs> okay. neck. Should we call this? <laughs> I think we should call this. <laughs> no, actually, I think this is fun. What animals are we? Billy's a crane. Billy's definitely a crane. I mean, I I've been told well my whole life that I'm a monkey. Like my parents called me a monkey because I would just like climb all over them. And then now this is transferred also into Jared. So that's what I've been told. Yes, but you look more like you know what it is? A, like a like a sloth, like a <laughs> apathetic. Look like a sloth. Thing no. <laughs> so you still cl- climb and hang, but you're pretty chill. Like monkeys you know what are I pretty annoying. You know what I learned? Okay, I'll take sloth. I learned about sloths is their um, default um, hand setting is closed. And then they have to work to open it. So it's the opposite from people. So that's why that they can like cling onto trees for so long. Because it's easy. Because that's just their normal muscle is in like a closed sloth grabby face. so cute. Yeah, well, they have to go against gravity. So that makes sense. That like they're yeah. contracted shut instead of open. What animal Okay, I'll be a sloth. Mm. something that's like really pretty but then really vicious Mm -hmm. fucking geese a regal (laughs) goose (laughs) or a swan i was at the hollywood forever cemetery and i was feeding the swans and i would feed them like oh they like me as soon as i would stop (laughs) they start hissing at you i'm like yeah i could be a swan yeah you could be a swan they are fucking terrifying vicious 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 geese are so mean i'm like a goose or a swan swans are pretty mean too so i'm one of those my mom got attacked by a goose and it just like (laughs) traumatized from it for the rest of her life it was terrifying it is so scary they're so scary i avoid them like the the plague if i if i see one they don't give a fuck you know what though the geese though the geese will actually come up to you and want like hey what do you got what do you got the swans will just come up to you but stay stay like probably six feet apart and just be like you know what what do you got they just hiss at you and and then just hiss at you or whatever but they're not going to be like pestering you because they're like look at how pretty i am give me something no but if you're a goose the goose (laughs) fuck i guess or i'd really like to be a swan but whatever um no I, i think it's interesting that geese hiss like cats it's so weird. I mean, swans do. No, swans, swans hiss at you. Yeah, the swans do that. Yeah, they I never hissed. knew they hissed. Now yeah, I like need to look c- this up. Yeah. Like, well, <sighs> yeah. We'll revisit this though uh, next time. Let's call it. Okay. Um, time of death fourteen fifty seven. Quack. Quack. <laughs>